welcome to Conversations on Karate. I'm Sue. I'm Greg. And today we have, from Applied Shirt Can, Andy Allen. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Greg. Hi, Sue. Hi. It's nice to meet you. <laughs> We've just been chatting um, just beforehand, and I was saying, that, you know, I've just literally started doing your classes. <laughs> We're just <laughs> talking about that. Your, um, your, your, uh, your, your YouTube classes, and they're awesome. Yeah, you're, you're, really you're keeping up with them okay? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I've done like two you know, <laughs> okay. since, since I started paying attention to them. But yeah, they're really good. They're Very really good. Good, fun yeah. way of doing it. It's that. something to do uh, uh, in the meantime, while we're waiting for things to get back, back getting back to normal. I can do some uh, some bunkai and some, some sparring and stuff. So that's what we're doing for now. Yeah, sparring's going to be, that's going to be the, the fun thing when we get back sparring again. Everyone's going to yeah, be... Uh, We'll be very rusty with our timing and targeting and everything yeah. else. Yeah, looking forward to it though. Yeah. So, um, tell us a little bit about your martial history, Andy. That's what we kind of normally get the people to to tell us about where kind of you started training and what brought you to where you are now. Because mm. you're really into the practical stuff, like we are. So. Yeah, yeah. So I've done a complete 180 in the last number of years. I, I started in 1990 when I was in my first year at Dalhousie University, uh, which is close by here, Halifax, Nova Scotia, Eastern Canada. And I just kind of started on a whim. There's a there's a, a poster up for beginner classes and I my friend and I went to join and I really, really enjoyed it. It was um, uh, a traditional, if you, that, that word traditional, there's different meanings to it, but mm. I, I know, you know what I mean. It's a, yeah. it's a karate, the Kataki on Kumite. And so I did that for a long, long time. And actually, just this past January was my 30th anniversary. Um, so I did that, uh, you know, trained her, did all the seminars, uh, had great instructors, and learned quite a bit. Uh, fairly early on, I got into the tournament scene, just the local tournaments, local and provincial. And eventually, as a freshly minted showdown, I, I did my first national tournament, which was an eye-opener. That was in 93. <laughs> And so for the longest time, it was just your 3K karate and, and sport. Um, so my sensei, he didn't focus a lot on sport, but it was part of, of our experience. Uh, mm -hmm. And we did it whenever we could. We'd have a, maybe a couple tournaments a year, plus nationals, which I eventually started going to. And I wanted to get better at that. So I sought out a local guy who uh, I believe is Shitaru, was world champion in his own his own uh, organization and I think he won world uh, with the what is now called the WKF a while back twice and once at the age of 40 for God's sake so um, so I learned a lot from him in terms of footwork and close and distance explosiveness uh, but but there's always something I, I felt that was missing from karate and I got pretty good at moving in very quickly and tagging people from a long distance yeah right? and not, not to say that's not a worthwhile skill to pursue, but it, it's, it is what it is, right? It, it's a sport context when a karate person is fighting another karate person in, in a rules-bound match. And I found that there was, there was it, the skill set was very, very narrow. Yeah. And I, I'm a school teacher by trade, and when, when, my, when my high school students are getting kind of rowdy, I'll, and it's usually the boys, I'll, I'll just kind of talk to the girls, hey, girls? Boys are idiots. We all know that because I used to be one. So speaking of which, when I, when I was 
back in university when I started, you know, my, my friends here, I'm in karate, they, they, they kind of take shots, right? You know, mm-hmm. try to hit the chest and then, you know, uh, I realized that that close range stuff was, was very different from the long range kumite. And within, in a, in a clinch kind of range, I had absolutely no idea what to do. It just wasn't part of Shotokan. There would be the odd instructor who had done some judo and would do some nice sweeps, but usually from a distance, you know, you kind of parry arm, you punch, you sweep, you knock them down. But uh, I, I wanted to, to expand my skill set. And, but there was a kind of an unwritten rule and even almost unspoken that you, you kind of stay loyal, right? You stay within your bubble. And so there was this reluctancy for me to to go to another martial art, go to another karate instructor and so on. But eventually uh, I, I saw some work from Ian Abernathy. Mm-hmm. You're familiar with him, of course. Yeah. And it was it was some bunkai from Hien Godan. And it was it was just that opening sequence where you do that that, that middle block and the Yakuzuki in that funny flowing water position. Yeah. And uh, you know the kind of bunkai I think uh, when I refer you, you're surrounded by a bunch of people and the guy on your left attacks you, then he waits with his oizuki out. So that's what I was accustomed to with bunkai. And I always had a distaste for it. It's not that I did, it was something to do, but I never regarded it as practical. Um, mm. But that's what I thought bunkai was. But anyway, I saw Ian's work. I thought, wow, that is, that's amazing. Um, it, that actually looked like it would work. So I started playing with that a lot and I was teaching karate in the in the public school system, which I'm still doing. And so I, I would just grab a student and here, come here, grab my cake, my gi. I would try things out and and uh, kind of make some mistakes and go back, watch a video, come back, try it again with another student and so on. And just, just eventually got more and more things trying. And I would incorporate some of Ian's work into my teaching. And, in the early stages, and this was probably about eight years ago, I'm just kind of uh, stumbling through things, trying to figure things out on my own. So I didn't have a instructor that would that uh, had that kind of skill set. Mm-hmm. Um, so eventually, I, I, I finally went to an Ian Abernathy seminar in New Jersey, and that was what 2016. And I had been kind of doing things on my own for quite a bit, and that was a, a an amazing experience. It was just three days or two and a half days of karate, 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 practical karate, meeting up different people from all over the continent and just playing with it. And Ian, of course, is super laid back. He's very willing to talk about anything related to karate, mm. very approachable. And so I started attending more of his seminars. I Then I discovered Patrick McCarthy, went to a few of his, and I just got deeper and deeper and deeper into it. And, and so in 2016, I started my own dojo. My, my friend of mine, Jay Crawford, he, he messaged me out of the blue one day. He said, he said let's, let's start a club. And we were both teaching this martial arts club, course, in the, in the public school system. And so I thought, oh, that, that'd be nice to actually have a, a real dojo, not just have a group of kids for a semester, five months, and then see them disappear. Uh, so when I first started the club, the my idea was to be a practical karate club, do the clinch work. So, and by this time, I, I was you know had, had a decent skill set, and mm. so I do the, the 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 clinch work, do some throwing, some locking, maybe a bit of groundwork, uh, and all kinds of pad work, all all the things that were missing from my experience in Shotokan. Yeah, and, and 
but at the same time, I, I was my my plan was to stay with the three core three K organization I was with, which was the ISKF, mm-hmm. uh, as you know, keep that grading syllabus. So the, the, it'd be the three K kind of syllabus for grading purposes. But along the way, the majority of our training would be practical. And what I do, I just I just extend the timeline. So instead of testing someone for their yellow belt in four months, it might be six months because train twice a week. I want them to learn practical skills, but we have to learn that sambal kumite and in mm. their air punching with that rigid form as well. And what I found is, is the more I learned and my wife would not disagree with this. I have an obsessive kind of personality when I, when I really get passionate about something, karate is something I think about. I, I'm online all the time, watching things, reading things. Uh, I'll be driving to work, and I'm thinking of drills I might want to do the next next day. And so, the, the more I learned, the more I realized that the, the balance wasn't working. It was mm-hmm. becoming very difficult to uh, park the, the practical karate because I had to get students ready for a test. Yeah, and they 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 weren't to they, they didn't fit because they're so vastly different in their focus and the and the way just the way you move so i, I can remember what, what what we would do is uh if we have a um on a particular night okay we're going to focus on one of the k's it's going to be key on night so i have two other jay crawford ryan mcguire both help me teach so we split up into groups Mm-hmm. According to rank, and we do the the the, the Keon sets as per the the ranks, and then okay, we do 20, 30 minutes of that. All right, let's go do some practical karate again. But it it it, it was kind of stuck on the side. Yeah. Right. It, it wasn't. So then we go do some pad work, or then we go do some bunkai, or we do some some throwing, and it just didn't fit. It wasn't feeding into what I really wanted students to learn. And especially with the step sparring, and I wrote a blog a little while ago on step sparring, mm. called Step Sparring, a Relic of the Past. Yep. And I, I found that really, really hard to sell. So I would sell Keon, you know, the, the, the traditional Keon. I do it much differently now. I would sell the, the traditional Keon, just you know, explode through the air. And, and this is a way to generate your, your speed and your power. and but then we take that kind of movement and throw it away and then go hit pads and it's much more fluid motion. Mm-hmm. So I, I tried to justify the key on the step sparring. I, you know, it was really hard for me to sell it. And I did my best not to let that, that show to my students. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually I had to decide it was time to leave. So, and I had been kind of writing a curriculum uh, on my own and the original intent was for it to be a, a supplementary curriculum. So it had some things kind of laid out for the ranks, the, the Q ranks through Shodan, some general things I wanted students to learn to get their, say, purple belt, other than their one-step sparring, their kata, and their so on. And eventually I realized that I, I need to formalize this and leave, leave my organization. And so I had a couple of options that I was seriously considering. And eventually I decided to go with the WCA. So I had contacted Ian for more information. Mm-hmm. For those who don't know, the, the WCA is the World Combat Association, um, yeah. which is the international branch of the, the BCA, I guess. And 
so you know, Ian was very, very helpful. There's 11 things you have to have in your curriculum. You, you have to hit all of them, but how heavily you weight one thing over another word, it depends on your background and what you value and so on. So it, over the course of 10, 12-ish months, I kind of banged away at that and sent some drafts off to Ian for, for his uh, perusal, and he kind of gave me a thumbs up, and eventually I finished it. And in January this year, which coincidentally was my 30th anniversary with my 3K organization, I I had a conversation with my sensei and just told him I had to, I was going to leave. And he, he's been a very supportive of my work because I, I would do a video and the Jushio Bunkai or uh, Hien Shodan Bunkai, I sent it to him and he, he thought it was quite fascinating because he, he he's actually kind of self-taught, uh, which is amazing that he he's come so far, he's technically absolutely amazing proficiency. Um, but he was never taught anything like that because he went to the JK, right? Mm. Uh, so he has been very supportive uh, of, of the kind of branch note I was doing to try to give some relevancy to Shotokan in terms of an art for self-defense. Yeah. So he, and he, he told me, uh, and his, his brother Danny also, Tony and Danny Tam, they're both uh, my instructors. Uh, so Tony said, you know, no surprise that you're leaving. We, we, we've talked about this. We, we knew it was going to happen. It was just a matter of time. Mm. And, and, you know, he, he said, we're, we can still be friends. It wasn't like uh, I was uh, being disloyal and, <laughs> and, and, and shunned and never to come back. So he, he actually, I've been teaching some Zoom classes for him as well. So uh, the relationship is still good, which is, which is, uh, um, I, I was a bit stressed in terms of how you take that. Anyway, yeah. uh, so I, I, in January, I had, I had just finished my curriculum, got the stamp of approval from Ian. And in my high school course, which is a, a, like a phys ed credit, I also teach biology, but in the high school martial arts 11 course, I ran about, I guess, 55 students through my brand new syllabus and they were testing for the yellow belt. And I had a couple of yellow belts test and then I was ready to test two orange belts uh, and then COVID hit. <laughs> the day they were going to test on Tuesday and the rec center was shut down on Monday. So <laughs> uh, I, I got off to a good start with the, with implementing the, well, I had been teaching the syllabus all along, but in terms of testing out with the syllabus, got off to a good start, but uh, came to a grind halt for now. Mm. But um, the syllabus is, like I said, the, the WCA dictates, uh, there's 11 things that you have to target. Mm-hmm. And it, it is very, very, it gives you a lot of autonomy as an instructor. And that's important because my experience and your experience and someone else's experience may differ quite a bit, right? Yeah. So along my journey in, in trying to uh, broaden my skill set and try to find some answers in kata, I, I, I started some judo. That was about five years ago. And because I, I needed to learn how to do some basic throws. And I stuck around long enough to get a yellow belt and to realize I was way too old for judo. Just <laughs> too hard in the body. I, it was fantastic. Yeah. But the, the throwing is fun, but getting slammed on a the, on the tatami, even with a good break fall when you're middle-aged, just, it, it just destroyed my body. So, But anyways, I, I picked some skills up there, started some jiu-jitsu, which I dabbled in for about a year and a half. Really loved that. Um, hope to go back to it someday when they open full-time. Uh, but but I would see things in 
in judo and jiu-jitsu, ah, that throw. Um, trying to remember the name of the throw. Uh, Tayatoshi. It's mm -hmm. similar to what you see at the end of Basadai after the big Yamazuki and the, the sweeping hand motion. Um, and there's all kinds of throws in Hian Sandan and Hian Shodan. There's throws everywhere. And so certain throws, although they're more dynamic and explosive in judo, the, the bones are found in these katas, which I started to recognize. One time in jiu-jitsu, we were doing a, a defense against a single leg technique, like a single leg takedown. Mm -hmm. And the, so the, the instructor, he's shown us the motion, kind of push the head, find a gap, get an underhook, grab the leg and pull up as you stomp your leg to the ground. Like, That's basadai. So I got really excited and I was showing, hey, look at it. that technique you were showing us comes from a kata, it's called basadai. Show him the kata and then try to relate that to what he's just teaching. And I was blown away. He didn't seem all that impressed <laughs> coming from a, a you know, background that's not based on forms, right? But as karateka, when we see something that looks like kata, we get very excited, right? Yeah. Um, so, as far as the curriculum is concerned, um, the, there's, a, there's hard skills and soft skills. The, the soft skills are your de-escalation and verbal tactics, right? And I got to say, I'm not what much for, for drama and role play. Uh, I do my best. My students, most of whom are teenagers, they are way better at it than me. They get very animated. And I, I, I tell them, we want to try to create an environment when, when, when we're when we're doing our de-escalation, verbal de-escalation. We want to make things as real as possible. I want when someone's I want someone screaming at you, uh, if that's part of the part of the scenario. I want it to feel scary, and so and I say, you know, we'll shut the doors because maybe there's some children downstairs in the rec center. Uh, you know, drop some. F bombs if you want to, and and some they're they're good kids, so they're a bit reluctant, <laughs> but they but they do get really into it and uh, using the preemptive strike. Um, so they they do like the soft skills, the role play. My favorite is of course the the hard skills, the the smashing, the joint locks, and the this hitting pads and so on. And um, there, there's a guy I know, uh, Jeff McDonald. He's with the KU. Have you heard of KU? Koryu Uchinati, Patrick McCarthy's group, right? Uh, so he, he's helped me along the way as well. He's given me some ideas for different uh, bunkai, for different katas. Mm -hmm. And when I first met him, uh, it was with a, he was hosting Patrick McCarthy. And I was posting stuff uh, of my students on, on online and I had been doing some pad work. And he, he messaged me and said, it's, it's so awesome that you're doing pad work. But for me, it just was common sense, right? Even though I didn't go through a lot of years hitting pads, when I started my current dojo, I just that had to be part of it. Yeah. Um, but there's so many people out there, especially in the quote-unquote traditional karate styles, they don't hit anything. Yeah. And there's there's I might I might I may start a, a little series of videos on myths of karate, <laughs> but there's this idea that if you you do your kion, you know what I mean, like the, the rigid yeah. stop motion kind of kion. If you yeah. do your kion over and over and over and over and over, you'll you'll learn to hit with power and learn how to fight and defend yourself. And you know, it's it's part of it's one layer of training, right? Learning how to move properly. But 
to think that you're going to be able to hit something hard just by punching air molecules, I think, is a is a myth. Definitely, you need that feedback of knowing your structure's wrong. And yeah, especially for those starting off, they'll punch with their wrist a little bit bent, mm-hmm. and you have no idea if you're doing that in air. But as soon as you hit a heavy bag, your wrist buckles. And oops. Yeah. There was something wrong with that, or even just tagging someone in the chest, you know, with some, with some light contact and your wrist buckles. And that's happened to me before, too. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so for in my syllabus, uh, so with the soft skills, we get the awareness, avoidance, verbal de-escalation, uh, preemptive strikes, power generation. So for, for every, every Q rank, uh, I have, there's, of course, we're doing kata, we're doing bunkai. And the way I do my kion, uh, so see you've done some of my workouts, and and so the kion that I do is not that, um, um, that where you, you stop and freeze, stop and freeze, stop and freeze. Yeah. It's more free flowing. Some of it might even look like boxing, and and some people have accused me of not. That's not shoulder can, and okay, that's that's fine. And, and my for my goals, it's better than the shoulder can kion. Yeah. Um, so I, I was asking Ian at last year's residential, and I, as far as Keon, like, what do you do? Do you do like the rigid Keon with the Hecate and everything, or do you do it more freestyle? He said he does it both. And so he gave me an idea, which I kind of ran with. So I decide what pad drills I want to do with for all ranks. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a building of skills. So. The white belts are doing an oizuki, but it's a little bit different than your traditional oizuki. And they're also doing a maigiri oizuki. Then I, and then a few others as well. And I take those kions, the, the, the pad drills, and the, the, the kion and the pad drills are, are paired. So first, for the test purposes, they, they do their, their oizuki, boom, 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 by the count. And they do their other kion sets as well. And then they take the exact same kion sets, and they do it on the pads. So for me, and I have a video and a blog about this as well. Kion is a tool, not a goal. So for the longest time, uh, we I was preached to by all the Shotokan instructors I ever met that form, 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 form. Yeah. And it was very much a form over function approach. Yeah. And for me, that's bass backwards. You, you, because the form, what is considered good form in Shotokan is really... Uh, the criteria are more aesthetic-based. Yeah, exactly, yeah. It's not based on function. Right. right. So hip square, shoulder square, shoulders down and back, uh, yeah. fist perfectly centered in your in your midline, back knees straight, feet at a whatever angle. Um, it, it looks good. It looks good to the Shotokan karate person. A boxer might look at it and not understand. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I figured, well, this kind of kion, and I know from experience, from personal experience and from watching students trying to move in a natural way. Uh, I had a, a young girl come to my dojo who was from uh, a 3K club, and we're doing power, it was like a jab cross hook. And the footwork is different for the hook punch. You get a pivot on the ball of your front foot, right? And put your weight transfer to your back. And that's not something you see a lot in shoulder can. So she kept staying in the front stance with a very armsy hook punch and there's no fluidity to it mm-hmm. and I, I would watch her doing a uh some kind of a takedown where you kind of scoop behind the legs i think they call it a scoop throw uh, leo de machidi used to do it and she'd leave her back leg way far back into a front stance kind of geometric configuration 
didn't know how to move and shuffle. And, and so I, I would recognize she was doing her stances and her movement like the traditional keon. Yeah. And, and I've had similar experiences personally. So I wanted my keon to be more free flowing with, with, uh, with more practical kind of footwork. So the way I did the keon drills and they start simple, like the Oizuki, my Gary, and they get more complicated where you're, you're using angles, you're using punching, kicking combinations, but my keon is all for the purpose of, of attack striking. It's just mm -hmm. what I chose to do. And, uh, so from, from white belt, and then my curriculum, students learn how to do uh, uh, subiyashi, which is a, a shuffle, front back, front back, when, you're, when your feet move, right from the very beginning. And that's how we do our jab cross, or kizamazuki, yakuzuki. Uh, and we don't do our kion from that long front stance. There are some, like we, I still do shutoke, just because I find when they're doing their kata, and the kata I keep formal as it is. When they're doing the kata, the kokotsudashi, the back stance and the shuto, that's one thing they have difficulty with. So I, I kept it in the traditional way in, in, the, in the syllabus. Um, but yeah, the, the kion for me is a tool to make your movement more natural and more effective. Not just for hitting pads, but for sparring, moving fine angles, closing distance. And so, you know what I mean by unlearning? Yeah. Yeah, so... Uh, I, I have this distinct memory. I can't remember what belt I was. I might have been a brown belt. And you know how in Shotokan we, we tend to spend a lot of time in you know, you're in a long zenkutsudashi front stance, and you're just moving your hips and torso. Yakuzuki Gidambrai. And so then my sensei was, was telling me, shuffle, like move your front foot in from a free stance, hit Yakuzuki. But hit with your yakuzuki before your front foot lands. And I'm thinking, well, that's not the way we're taught. He said, yeah, you have to do it different, differently now. And I didn't think much of it at the time, but why do we do that, right? Mm. Why, why do we teach skills that we have to ditch yeah. later on? And, and that argument is used for all kinds of uh, uh, aspects of traditional Shotokan, uh, step sparring. Right, step sparring, yeah. to me, teaches so many bad habits. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So one, two, three, and then hold your punch out so someone can counterattack. And the, the, the distance is wrong, the attacks are not realistic, um, it's very rigid, uh, but yet people will say, well, that's for beginners, you're teaching correct distance and form and so on, but you're, you're teaching the wrong distance yeah. and you're teaching a form and a, a methodology of moving that doesn't really, it's not a stepping stone mm. into something else, in my opinion, at least. Yeah. Well, the thing, the thing for me with the, the, the three step and five step sparring, especially, is you're always taught to step back. But then, you know, during sparring, it's, you never step back because if you step, you get flattened. So, well, but you've learned that skill through the first however many ranks and it's, it's it's already in there forget it when you get to brown belt it's just insane yeah um and there's i wrote something a while ago uh layering our our training to avoid the development of training scars yeah. and so a training scar is basically a bad habit mm -hmm. that's going to get you in trouble and that that can be that term is you can be used in martial arts training it can be used in uh, law enforcement uh, so you have to make sure you're not training with flawed methodology. So 
because in, in times of stress, your your training will take over. Your brain kind of doesn't think so much. That frontal lobe is not going to have time to react. You just do what's instinctive, right? And so I, I do my best to try to eliminate training scars by providing different layers. And first of all, in Kion, we move in a way that's more natural, and but you're not hitting anyone, right? Or not hitting anything, but you're working on your form. So it's an important layer of training, but you can't stop there. So if you're doing punching and kicking, well, let's hit something. And so you have someone holding the pads for you. And let's say it's just a, uh, you know, a, cause I'm a jab cross and a front leg mawashigiri or something. And you teach the students how to hold the pads, how to move and put them in the right place. And, and then you can smash, smash, smash. And right away, oh, my, my wrist is buckled. Or I'm hitting with the tips of my toes instead of my shin or in step, whatever you want to do. Uh, and you get that immediate feedback. Mm-hmm. But pads don't hit back. Um, so you can go to a partner and get move your fists and feet to the real target. But then, of course, you can't hit. So then you're teaching yourself not to hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're using the pads, sometimes the pads are in the wrong spot just because you have two pads in front of you, both of which represent the head. Yeah. Uh, so then you go back to a, a, a real partner, but then you can't hit again. Um, and then, of course, you have to another layer, the last layer, would be try to make it work on the fly. You're, mm-hmm. you're pressure testing your live training, which is another part of my curriculum right from the very beginning. It, it's you know, a simple level. Students yeah. need to do live training. And that's another myth of karate I want to write about someday is that, uh, um, well, look, look at the, the syllabus you find in any big Shotokan organization. In the JK, I think it's the same, which we used to be part of. Mm-hmm. Uh, the ISKF, I think it's the same for the WTKO. You don't start free sparring for testing purposes until your need end test. Because I was going to ask you something about it so I can check exactly when it is. Yeah, you're, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Need, yeah. That's, no, that's let's think about that. So I, I don't think anyone would, would argue you can't free spar until you need end, but to never be tested on it, mm. to me, seems ridiculous. Yeah. So my, my white belts, they're Jui Kumite, or they're free sparring. It's limited. They're only allowed straight punches, mm-hmm. right? They can make some contact to the body. Uh, you know, touch the leather on the cheek is, is all they're allowed for their, for their punches. And for their, their next test, from yellow to orange, they're allowed adding front kicks. And then a little bit later, they're allowed some light leg kicks and some, and then it kind of opens up. And, uh, but I, I have live training, um, the white belts also do some niwaza or some ground fighting. Now, for white belts, they're only allowed fighting for positions to get full mount or side control. And just for the purpose of the test, in case there's, it's very lopsided, uh, they're allowed to hold a position for five seconds, and then they have to try to stay dominant and get to another position. So let's say they have side control, and they're, they're, they get chest on chest, and they, they kind of count five Mississippi in their head. And then maybe they want to do a, a pass to get full mount. And from there, they got to disengage, maybe go north-south. Um, and then they're allowed submissions in their, in their next level, so very early on. But there's no uh, ankle locks and knee locks and dangerous things yeah. like that. But you, you, you teach safety along the way. But in, in back to the Shotokan syllabus, if you, if you kind of stuck to the Shotokan syllabus and, and some slight variations of, by the time a person's testing for Nidan, they've been trained for at least bare minimum four years, but probably more. 
Yeah. Right? And so let, let's say even training for some free sparring for six months prior to your test. That That's, I, I, I think the syllabus should reflect the goals you have in place for your students. Yeah. Right? And so when I wrote my curriculum, I want students to have skills uh, fighting from a distance, fighting from a clinch, some basic throws, some basic, basic ground fighting, escaping. And I do a lot of drills, a lot of bunkai drills, a lot of pad drills, a lot of, uh, um, usually when I do key nights, like I say, it's for the purpose of closing distance, attacking, punching, kicking. So if we're going to do a, 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 some pad drills from the five, fifth Q syllabus, we'll do the key off first. Mm. And then drills. Uh, but live, tr- live training, pressure testing should be done at some level right at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but my belts say also they, they fight for, for grips in a clinch. Mm-hmm. Um, it's safe. No one gets hurt, but we, I have a couple different flow drills I teach, both of which I've learned from Ian at seminars. They're simple, right? You start in a neutral collar tie, uh, try to get an overhook. They escape. They get an overhook. Uh, you escape and so on. It's just simple stuff. But why, why are the big organizations so reluctant to branch out? And why do they keep preaching the basics, basics, basics mantra? Mm, yeah, I think a lot of it comes down to you've done something for so long it's kind of admitting that you've not done it wrong but you've kind of yeah. wasted time do you know what i mean That's <laughs> yeah. um that me and and joe who who who's uh, another instructor with us he he said the same you know you kind of question what you've done for the last 20 odd years but it doesn't mean it's a waste of time it just means that you know you've you've got a good base and it you know it's just expanding your horizons i guess right I wouldn't say what I did for, for so long was because it was probably 22 years of training yeah. before I, I started seeing things and started yeah. to experiment. But and again, 22 years of training, like I said, I was uh, very good at the 3K stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and very good at the, the point sparring. But it could have been a whole lot better. And I'm not saying throw it all away, although I, I've done a lot of throwing away. I've thrown away the steps burn. I've thrown away the traditional Keon. But I think it, it needs to be part. All that, that basics training, Kata training, should be part of the training, not yeah. all of the training. Yeah. So, and then the, the bunkai, <laughs> the, you know, the, the JKA kind of stuff. Remember the blue screen VHS tapes? Are you guys old enough for that? <laughs> yeah, the, uh, the all the the JKA legends I used to idolize when I was younger, Osaka, Yahara, all those guys. Uh, they um, they were amazing competitors, right? Uh, just absolutely unreal the stuff they could do on the mat. Mm. But their knowledge of bunkai, what what kata is. It was a, uh, a lot of how versus why. Like, here's how you do your kata. Yeah. Here's how you move your hips. You know, for and again, these criteria are aesthetically based. Mm. They're they're not. Why do we do this? That that's not. Yeah. Part of the conversation. I think it's, it comes down to like we've said before. We 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 chat with Pat McCarthy and we chat with James James Hatch as well. Is is that cult, that Japanese culture? You just don't ask. Do not ask why. And I think for them, when we get taught over here, it's just not in our nature not to ask questions. Right. 
we have to do it. You just you just need to know. Yeah. And but you know, as, as Westerners, uh, and I'm guilty of this early on, um, we kind of place, and I, I don't mean to be critical of, of the Japanese, but you know, it's a different culture, but mm-hmm. we would, my experience, people tend to place the Japanese on a pedestal. Yeah, for sure. And just by virtue of being Japanese, we would give people, instructor more credit versus Joe Smith, who yeah. might be a great karateka and yeah. very knowledgeable, but for some reason didn't give him as much credit. Yeah. And the, uh, along that, when, when the Japanese masters would come in, uh, you, you'd kind of see you know, there's a certain way to behave around them. We kind of uh, dot our eyes, cross their T's, and be you know bow a little deeper and so on. Mm-hmm. But that that culture of not questioning uh, kind of creeped its way into the dojos, even in the Western part of the world. Yeah. And this is the way the Japanese say this. The instructor says this is the way we're going to do it, and you just say us, and you do it and don't question. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not the approach I use. I when I my first dojo I opened in '94. Uh, that's the way I taught. It's these on the old Japanese way, and, and uh, eventually I realized that it's just not me. When I when I first started um, teaching public school, uh, I was in a really really rough school, and I had some some students who were just you know it was their mission to make all the teachers miserable. Yeah. So the vice principal who I, I am grateful for to this day, he pulled me in his office and just, we had a heart to heart chat. And he said, look, he realized that there was, things were not going well in the classroom. I was a brand new teacher. I came into a bad situation. All the grade seven teachers were out sick. It was all substitutes. It was just chaos in that part of the school all day long in the French class, in the math class, in my science class. And I was trying to be someone that I wasn't. I was trying to be super stern and rigid. And he said, look, this takes time, but you, you can't try to be someone else because there's this one teacher who was just that. And she was the drill sergeant and she was a really lovely person, but in the classroom, she had a way of making that drill sergeant thing work. And, and the drug dealers and pimps in the class, they would just shut right down and they would work for her. Whereas, next period in the English class, they're creating havoc. Uh, so the vice principal told me, you got to figure out a way to, to, to run a class and, and be you. Mm. And it took some time, but by, by the end of the year, uh, I had such a better relationship with the, with my students. And that's when, when I'm teaching my, in my dojo or with my high school students, uh, taking my karate class, uh, I'm not that rigid person anymore. Uh, there's some intensity. I, I take my training and my teaching seriously. I want students to learn. So I'm giving feedback and, I, and I'll call someone out for being lazy and kind of going with the motions. Mm. But at the same time, I don't mind cracking a joke and showing a smile in the yeah. dojo. And I, I try to keep it light, but we're here to train. Yeah. Laugh. Now it's time to train. Yeah. Yeah. So the... I think that's important as, as uh, for young instructors out there to, to, to be themselves. And yeah. but we, we tend to teach the way we were taught, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And eventually yeah. we mature and, and find yeah. our own path. Yeah, yeah. Part of the chuhari. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that's, 
going back to the key on that, that was the thing when when I was developing our syllabus that I found insanely hard to to get over. Of like you said, if you don't include that strict key on, are you you know does it look more like boxing? Does it look more like this? Like that. But here you say that yeah, you're you're quite happy to drop it. It's kind of like okay. Yeah, and one one thing I realize is because of my extensive training in three K. I, I've, I have figured out how to to make that work. My, my instructor would do a lot of Tai Sabaki, a lot of body shifting. It'd be yeah. out of context, right? So um, not completely out of context, but a lot of it, it's just by yourself. And we use many different types of footwork to find angles and so on. And by accident or by purposeful exploration, I figure out a way to make that work. Uh, either in in grappling or excuse me or in uh, uh, kumite because I, I did a lot of competition as well so one thing I have to realize is my students aren't going to get that kind of training yeah right they're not going to move like I move mm. and sometimes I have to stop and and realize why can't they just shuffle forward like this when they're doing their their pad work and, you know i realize it's 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 because they haven't done 20 years of of, yeah. of, of sugiyashi footwork um so i have to kind of step back sometimes break things down and left right left right left right move like this okay switch feet do it again do it again do it again that's yeah. add punches to it let's go back to the pads now um so but i i don't think that that is a justification for doing all that keon. Right? Again, it should be part of the training. It shouldn't be 80% of it. Yeah. Right? Because not everyone is going to be able to figure out how to make that work in, in a context. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. One thing I did like, so you, you put a YouTube video, and I'm going to steal this, by the way, I'll tell you now, is the... Um, the the random uh, examiner coming up to you during any part of the grading with a, a focus mitt. I thought that was brilliant. Yeah. For the deflation and preemption training. Yeah. So that that's uh, that's Jake. <laughs> he, he's he's better at the drama than I am, and he came up with some clever scenarios. So this was uh, one of the drills that we did at the 2019 residential with Ian, mm -hmm. and the idea is a preemptive strike. So in terms of Awareness, avoidance, escape, that's the first thing that white belts learn is, uh, I also have to tie in some legalities. You can't just haul off and smash someone. And we, we have conversations afterwards. So, well, you, you're probably getting charged there <laughs> because when, when someone comes up to you and starts uh, poking you in the chest and then you haul off and smash him, maybe that's a bit too early, mm. right? So the idea is uh, Jake would come up and um, the, the students wouldn't know what was, they knew something was gonna happen, but they didn't know what the scenario was going to be. So Jake, out of the blue, he would start talking about, uh, you know, you, you took my parking spot, what are you doing? Uh, I was about to park there, you pull it in front of me. Um, and it'd get very hostile with the student. And the student is supposed to be able to kind of read the situation and decide, is he gonna back down? Is he a threat, uh, which is determined by his his tone of his voice, his emotional state, his body language. In the meantime, Jake is holding the, the, the focus mitt up by his head all the time because 
he has to always present a, a target to hit. If he flashes yeah. at the right moment, that's a that's a cue, and the student yeah. didn't know should I hit, should I not hit, and if I'm going to hit, is now the time? And so they would uh, use the fence. So get their, their hands out in front of them. Now Ian does it with his uh, palms towards him, which yeah. are kind of because if you, and the, the trick is to, to couple the the dialogue with body language and you, you throw out a question, why can't we talk about this? And as you do that, your hands kind of come out in a questioning kind of uh, body language. And then that's your cue to smash and then run away. Um, and some students do a great job on that. Some of them just will hit Jake's pad in, in mid-sentence. <laughs> so again, we have to have some conversations. Yeah, that, that's it's probably too early. Um, or you, if 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 Jake looks gives signs that he's going to kind of back down and then just walk away, then you you can't hit. Uh, and that's another part of the um, the curriculum is is legality. So. Canadian law. I think most countries are, are pretty simple. You you have to uh, under Canadian self-defense law, you have to believe that threat is being used against you. Sorry, yeah. force is used being against you, or there's threat of force. Yeah, yeah, and, that's very similar. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, based on your actions, are are your actions do they match the threat? Right. Mm -hmm. So if, if it's a and I get, I gave a bunch of scenarios to my students, that group of 55 kids I was talking about earlier, um, and they'd have to uh, uh, write about that. So you're working at Tim Hortons. Oh, you don't know what Tim Hortons is over there. Tim Hortons is a, is a huge coffee donut chain. Yeah. Here in <laughs> so you're at, you're you're off your late shift at Tim Hortons. You're going to your car in the middle of the parking lot. There's no one there except for an elderly man. He's staggering he's throwing his words and he's uh and he says i can't remember the quote uh hey honey you're looking good tonight yeah 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 yeah, yeah. uh what and then the girl she walks away turns around comes back to the old man hits him on the side of the head puts him in a clinch knees him in the in the groin throws him down beats him to oblivion gets in his car gets in her car and runs away so they have to talk about that. Was she justified in doing so? Ah, was there, did she believe there was a, for, a force was being used or a threat of force? Yes, the guy was threatening to sexually assault her. But also in the law is written, is escape a possibility? Mm -hmm. The guy is loaded drunk, can hardly talk, can't really walk. And she was some distance away from, so she should have just gotten the car. So students have, are given scenarios like that to uh, try to understand uh, what you can and can't do. Mm -hmm. And I always throw in a disclaimer, I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's, it's definitely an important part of it, though. And Ian's talked about that a lot is, like you said, you don't need to be a lawyer, but you just need to understand the basics to know. And it just kind of gives you that confidence that if you are in a situation, you, you know the law in theory because yeah. of your training should be on your side if you do the right thing. Yeah. And something Ian also talks about quite a lot is the, the necessity to actually practice the scenarios. And, and this is definitely, for me personally, uh, my weakest skill set is the, um, the, the role play and stuff. Yeah. But it's important to put yourself, 
for yourselves in situations where you are engaged in role play, there's meaningful dialogue with the uh, appropriate emotional content and you are forced to respond to whatever your pretend uh, threat is thrown at you, you know, verbally. And you have to practice it. It, it is a skill. Mm. And for the instructor to, to just say, uh, to do a little written exercises like I was referring to earlier is valuable, but you have to throw yourself in a situation where you've got a, a person who's pretending to be drunk and they're five meters away. They can yeah. hardly walk. They're making threats at you. Do you engage or do you get out of the way? And, and throw students in that situation where they have to make that decision. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like I said, the, the students love those, those kind of scenarios. They get really animated with them. Um, yeah, yeah they're good fun. I, I, as an instructor, I have to be disciplined enough to uh, uh, make time for that too. Yeah. Because I, I, I'm very guilty of, okay, I got, I got a plan for my class. We're going to do some bit of key on, we're going to do the pad work, and then we're going to take that pad drill into a sparring drill. Um, it's going to involve a takedown, da 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 da. And oh, we're going to do some scenario stuff at the end. And I keep running the time, class after class after class. So. Just um, in the scenario drills as well. I mean, we've done a few of those, and I was just having a conversation with some uh, some other guys about about karate and about women in in self defence and what have you. And we were talking very much about um, always swapping partners. Yes. And I think also in that self defence scenario, in the threat scenario, um, that you know, if I'm being threatened by a ten year old boy that's got one level of threat feelings about it. Um, if I'm threatened by another woman in that drill, it has another set of feelings about it. Yeah. When I'm threatened by, you know, Greg, um, it's that it is different again when I'm up against someone who's six foot two. Mm. That's another, you know, so the, the different, it's so important to when you do that to really mm. mix it up with different people. So you get that feeling like you were saying, does this yeah. really feel like a threat? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that and that's actually part of the Canadian law as well. Like the 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 physical size differences is it male against male, female female, male against female, uh, and that's something that's in the law. And that's something like you said, we we should purposefully try to. You can have the same scenario we're yeah. working on class, but so first you're you're with a um, a, a man who's two hundred pounds, six foot one, and then you're doing the same drill with a twelve year old boy, mm-hmm. right? So you. you what we should see is for, for the student, for Sue, respond differently to the same threat because one is more dangerous than the other one. Yeah. Assume a 12-year-old boy you know, can be, you know, isn't a phenom martial artist. <laughs> yeah. But I think the thing is, it's just that checking in with yourself, you know, getting used to the feeling. Mm. Yeah. Of the threat even when you're role playing we still know it's still you get the adrenaline up there when you really get into it like you were saying you yeah. get the adrenaline in and um it's it's good to keep playing with it yeah for sure yeah yeah um one thing we did on a related note uh at the residential last year this was kind of fun and i did it with my students a couple times is and this really hits home the importance of not fighting on the ground in a self-defense context and the jujitsu people, a lot of them don't like to hear this, but that's the last place you want to be. Yeah. If it's if it's non-consensual violence, you don't want to be on the ground. So uh, I, I do drills where we're, we're doing some pad work and then you get to a clinch, you 
fight from clinch, you throw the ground and you continue fighting on the ground. It might be a, a structured drill. It might be uh, more open, but the goal is to hit, close, clinch, hit again, throw, engage in the ground. But, and that's fun. It's a lot of fun and, and students absolutely love it. But they also have to understand that that's fighting, consensual violence, and it's not a tactic you want to do in self-defense. So you don't want to intentionally go to the ground. We definitely have to have skills on the ground so we understand how to uh, escape or yeah. protect ourselves from the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, it, at the residential, we were, we were doing some ground fighting and I think it was just some focus mitts Ian was thrown out and those were things on the ground, rocks, bricks, whatever, beer bottles, and you, you get a hold of that and you, you start hitting them, okay? And the objective, of course, for the other person was to, to try to uh, control that arm so they, they can't get hit and so on. So, um, so maybe you went to the ground intentionally, then all of a sudden you're getting hit in the head with a brick. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, but, a, that's ever. Yeah. Yeah. I also do some stuff where, in, in terms of skill sets, uh, maybe it's one person's objective to get them on the ground, and the other person is trying to avoid that, right? Yeah. They have to stay engaged in the fight, but they're, they're trying to nullify any attempt to get thrown or taken down. And if they do get taken down, they have to get up as fast as they can yeah. and then continue fighting. And then they switch roles. So it's, it's a way to kind of uh, practice a skill set against resistance with, with different goals in mind. Yeah. Yeah, so many things you can do. Those drills as well. It's, I, th- I think it's this, the semi-free sparring idea. It's, it makes it fun. Like we do some of the stuff like that for our warm-up sometimes. With, you know, the, the clinching and the grappling. It's just fun. Mm-hmm. It's it's relatively safe. Compared, yeah. You know, all-out sparring, and yeah. you still benefit from it. Yeah. Speaking of semi-free sparring, or in Shotokan, you call it juipon kumite. Yeah. Like the, the karate kind, mm-hmm. where you're in a fighting stance, and to, to me, it, so for, for the listeners who don't know what I'm talking about, basically, it's karate sparring. Uh, it's prearranged, so you you know what attack is going to come. It's going to be a lunge punch or a maigiri, like a front kick or a side kick, whatever. So you start in a free kind of style where you're in a fighting stance, you're moving around, and at some point I throw my attack, but then I hold it there. Yeah. And then, just like step sparring, that person blocks and counters, mm-hmm. and it's, it's over. I think that's a, a good example of good intentions for whoever came up with that, but yeah. they get it wrong, right? Yeah, I would agree, yeah. It, it, it's supposed to be a bridge between your rigid step sparring and your free sparring, but it, it's still way too formalized, mm-hmm. right? So I, I, like we were just talking about, um, semi-free sparring is good, uh, in the sense that it's it's free moving, but there's some kind of uh, uh, limitation. So so maybe I'm going to throw a haymaker punch, and I'm going to keep throwing haymaker punches, and that's all I'm allowed to do. Mm-hmm. And you have maybe I scaffold the drill. So Greg, you have to do this, but you just don't know when my haymaker punches are coming. And maybe I have focus mitts on my hands. So I'm going to try to tap you inside of the head. Mm-hmm. So you get immediate feedback. Oh, I just got knocked out without actually getting knocked out. Yeah. But it's 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 a little more closer to reality, mm. right? Uh, or I could be throwing haymaker punches 
And I don't scaffold what you have to do. You can do whatever you want. You can crash and clinch. You can throw down, hit, and then run away. Uh, or you can go to the ground and continue fighting for there. And my objective is to keep on my feet and keep throwing handmaker punches. It's, it's, it's still semi-free, right? Yeah. It's, it's so much closer to reality than the, the JKA kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. I say JKA because so many organizations splintered yeah. from the JKA. They're essentially doing the same thing. Yeah, everyone knows what you mean if you say JKA. Yeah. I've said before, I think, you know, the, the five and the three step idea isn't a bad idea. It's just the way it's done. You know, a three step Kumite drill where you do a jab, cross, hook, and you right. to slip and move is, is still a three step Kumite drill, but yeah. you're learning a valuable skill. Yeah. Uh, Ian has an interesting theory about that because with the three step, I, I never practiced the five step. We just never did that. We did three step, I think, for the first two ranks, and it was one step. But Ian's theory is, uh, uh, in the Japanese martial arts, they they have the when they do their katas and judo, it's like one. So the the kazushi, you know, the big pull, yeah. they go one, two, two kazushis. On the third kazushi, you do your throw. Yeah. Or in kendo, it's a big step, step. And I don't know much about kendo, but uh, that long range kind of stuff in kendo. And then somehow they try to make that work in karate, but the the, the goals are different and the distance is different it's it's without weapons and um and it just doesn't work yeah yeah but if you say that in some crowds they it's it's heresy <laughs> oh yeah i've been there <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean well one quick before before we kind of uh, finish on the syllabus discussion i guess i I've, i'm past the point of, of um starting to implement that change but for anyone that kind of is set in that 3k at the moment and they're looking to progress what what would you say kind of is the the basics to introduce slowly and gradually to maybe you know like a, a low grade syllabus oh as an instructor trying to do this yeah yeah so, yeah. so without kind of revamping the syllabus straight away because obviously that can mm. come crazy for your students but yeah take one thing and add it in what, yeah. what you recommend uh well for me it was different because i was, I was always teaching the I mean, my club's only been open for four years. Um, yeah. I was always teaching the, pre- the practical karate alongside a 3K initially, right? So it wasn't when – I, when I ditched the 3K syllabus, it wasn't a big change. Yeah. We did all practical stuff. Uh, but I, I had to be more disciplined in making sure I would teach specific drills to specific ranks and so on. Um, but for the instructor, let's say someone like myself who just did 3K, um, certainly – 10 years ago, I couldn't go start writing the syllabus because I just didn't know anything. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't know anything about grappling, clench work, very little about throws, nothing about groundwork. I just didn't know anything. Yeah. Uh, so I guess, first of all, you have to decide what are your goals? What do you want your syllabus to look like? Because with the WCA, you could go really heavy on the, on the groundwork. You could go really heavy on the throws, but you don't have to, right? Uh, so are you looking towards developing people with fighting skills or more self-defense skills or a balance like I am? So you have to really first identify what your goals are. And before you write a syllabus, you have to have some kind of skill level. Yeah. And that's obvious. Yeah. Uh, so for me, I did some judo and jiu-jitsu and attended every practical karate seminar I could possibly go to. Um, so that, that'd be first, find your, determine your goals and... Uh, make sure you have some some the background skill set necessary to actually teach the stuff. Mm. Uh, that's a given. Um, but 
I would say uh, there's all kinds of stuff on YouTube. There's all kinds of things. This this movement, the PK, I call it, the practical karate movement, is just snowballing all the time. And and now I I scratch my head that people that aren't aware of this because yeah. they've been in trouble so long, right? Yeah. Uh, so I would say get get on YouTube, but you have to be careful where you go because with all the great stuff out there, there's a lot of crap as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and for the person who is kind of starting out, it's it's maybe difficult to discern the difference between quality material and fantasy. Yeah. Uh, but obviously, work. Look at the work of uh, Ian Abernathy, mm-hmm. Patrick McCarthy. I I think the UK is a bit of a mecca for practical karate. I know there's a lot of traditional stuff there as well, but there seems to be so many practical karate people there, like uh, Graham Palmer. Um, I had a few conversations with him in the past. He he's Shotokan guy and ditched it all. And I see him doing his uh, what is that Sunday workout he does called uh, Max Impact or something like that. It, okay. Yeah, they bunch of guys get together and they wail on the pads. Um, <laughs> so I, I think you need to get together with like-minded individuals, yeah. not not just watching YouTube videos, obviously, because that's the way I started. It's it's a slow learning process, but I had an unlimited supply of uki. I just grabbed one of my students every day and and told them throw a haymaker punch. I would just kind of learn by trial and error on my own that way. But go to every possible seminar you can by those who are respected in the field. And you obviously have to have an open mind and maybe be okay with the fact that what you've been taught as gospel in 3K is maybe closer to fantasy. Yeah. Right? And, and kind of be ready for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and be ready to, uh, even though maybe without intention, to offend people that are close to you. Right? Mm. Some people don't like uh, when when they see their comrades kind of branching out and then start to questioning things. Yeah. Yeah, so goals, know what your goals are. Make sure you have the necessary skill set. Cross-train, cross-train, cross-train. Because around here, um, I mentioned my friend Jeff. He's a four-hour drive away. I just can't go get together with him. He's too far away. Mm. Uh, so he comes down once a year for a seminar, though that got canceled this year for COVID. Uh, so... I was kind of left to cross train. So I, I did some uh, the jujitsu and judo and uh, there's some different seminars that local guys, whether it be kickboxing and Muay Thai, I'll go do some of those just to kind of expand my horizons. But cross training, if you don't have people nearby in the practical karate sphere, you have to cross train. Mm. Yeah, I'd agree. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. as far as writing the syllabus, yeah. Uh, you, atop of those things that I just discussed, are you going to be independent or do you want to belong to an organization? And for me, I didn't like the idea of being completely independent. Mm. Uh, and I did struggle with the idea of, of leaving my organization for um, the perception of legitimacy of ranks I issue, right? But joining the WCA gave me autonomy and it gave me a framework and yeah. it gave support to write the curriculum because it it is a absolutely daunting task oh yeah start from scratch it was yeah. huge and so before i was really speaking with ian on the matter 
um, you know, I, I knew I wanted to do pad work and bunkai and some throws and a uh, bit of groundwork. Uh, but to go from a few ideas, scattered ideas in your head to actually putting it down in a document, in a structured way that flows from rank to rank, uh, that was something that was, you know, it, it took me close to a year to write it. But if you're interested in the WCA or the BCA, if you're in, in the UK, uh, I found Ian to be very willing to help. I had uh, a number of email conversations with him. I, I spoke to him on the on the phone a couple times. Um, or if you're with the, the KU, it's it's more... Uh, if you if you belong to the KU, the I think the, there's a syllabus structured out for the Dan ranks. I think you kind of do your own thing-ish to the Q ranks. But also, there's all kinds of information there as well. Yeah. But and you can you can go now. What's the acronym? I K R something else. Oh yeah. Uh, you know what I'm talking about? You karate research society. Yeah. We'll, we'll link it in the in the episode if anyone wants to visit it. But yeah. So through them, you you can do a very similar process. I think with the WCA, um, you know, have have the time that you're looking for. But with uh, with Ian's group, I like the fact that it was laid out. Here's 11 things you have to target. You decide how it's going to look, mm -hmm. right? So for the bunkai, you can do bunkai for the whole kata, every rank. You can, for me, I took two drills for each rank, each kata. Yeah. And they don't cover all parts of the kata, uh, but they're, they're good drills that are they're based on HAPV, mm -hmm. acts of physical violence, which is um, Patrick McCarthy's theory. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I like the the, the the loose framework that the WCA had in place. And for me, it was just a matter of targeting those 11 things for the different ranks. Yeah, that's good. That's uh, that's good advice, I think, for everyone. I'm, I'm, as soon as we finish this, I'm going to go and start carrying on with our syllabus as well, because I'm, I'm about halfway through it. And uh, yeah. it got to a point where my head was filled with too much. So and you know what? Um, it's a really good idea if you if you have someone that's in the know, like understands this to to, to share it with, just to have another set of eyes. Mm. Because as I'm rolling through my screen after screen after screen, I kind of you, you tend to lose objectivity. Does this flow well? Like I think it flows from rank to rank. Uh, is this too much for a green belt? Um, and as someone who's been practicing karate for 30 years, uh, I can write something down. Like, my yellow belts are going to have to do this. Um, and some simple things I take for granted, maybe that's going to be a real struggle for yellow belts. Mm. So maybe another set of eyes to make sure that you're not expecting too much or too little. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. And also for the syllabus, uh, I think it's important whether a person is going to, because the number of people are with organizations like the BCA, WCA, but they're still part of their traditional organization, right? So for me to try to run the 3K syllabus and my syllabus, mm. uh, I don't know if I'd be able to do it. And, and another piece of advice, be careful about getting too deep and too wide. And I think, and time will tell, uh, I think I went a bit too far with, in both directions, deep and wide. <laughs> I got a lot of stuff in there. My, I mean, my, my curriculum document is 40 pages long. Yeah. 
it's just it's massive. Now, at the same time, I don't care uh, if it takes someone seven months to get their go from yellow to orange belt. No, yeah. And if, if that's something that bothers a person, um, my syllabus isn't going to work for them. There's just too much to, 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 to know. And I only teach twice a week, so the process is a bit slow. Mm. Yeah, so for example, the new was a ground fighting. Uh, so I, like I said, went off and off trained jujitsu between injuries, basically, uh, for about a year and a half. I'm still a white belt, three stripes on a white belt. I'm certainly not, uh, expert, even close to it. A blue belt would wipe my arse on the mat, but I, I, I do a fair bit of, of Niwaza and I, I like it. It's fun. Yeah. Students love it, but I keep it fairly simple. The, the, we do sweeps. So if you have someone in your guard, sit or sweep. We do a couple submissions, like a triangle choke from uh, from guard, Kimuras from guard, from side control. I have so early on, it's very simple. Someone's in your guard, do a Kimura. Someone's in your guard, do a sit or sweep. Uh, it'll slap slap the face into an armbar. Um, it's all white belt level stuff in terms of jujitsu mm. or judo, whatever you want to call it. Uh, even the black belt stuff is, is basic. Right? Yeah. So, but at the same time, I think it's important. I'm kind of getting off topic here for students to understand what are we doing? What, why are we doing what we're doing? What's its purpose? What's the strength of it? What are its flaws? And that's actually part of the WCA, uh, syllabus, uh, they call it uh, assessments of understanding. Mm-hmm. So when I'm testing my students, I'll, I'll say, let's look at this drill we just did. I want to know, is this for the purpose of developing skills for self-defense, for fighting, because they're different, and what are the strengths, what are the flaws? And, and I have dialogue every single day that I'm teaching. What is this drill for? Tell me something wrong with it. Oh, well, we're doing that smash the arm, smash the elbow, the neck can't really hit. So the flies, I can't actually hit them in the neck with my forearm. Yeah. Um, so we're developing a training scar and they understand what training scars are. Uh, so, so make sure students understand the purpose of what they're doing. And obviously, first of all, the instructor has to understand why they're doing what they're doing. So mm-hmm. outline those goals. And so for me, I'm, I'm, I'm looking at self-defense skills and fighting skills. Yeah. Uh, now, if I want to train fighters to go in the cage, I, I, a lot of my syllabus is not relevant. Right? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's a bit about it in terms of, uh, I think, uh, um, and be patient. <laughs> <laughs> this is not a weekend job writing the syllabus. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's one thing I had to, to uh, come to terms with. I would get frustrated. Think, it needs to be done. So, no, just take your time. It's better to yeah. get it right than get it right. Yeah. And... I also understand that when I finish this, uh, I'm quite happy with it, but I know that five years from now, there are things that I don't like, Yeah. things that I wish I'd added. So I'll, I'll revamp it, resubmit yeah. it, get approved and right. So you're, you're not going to, it's like building a house. People who uh, want their dream home, they build their own house. They get it all figured out, but then they move in and a year later, oh, we should have done this, 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 this. You're not going to get it right the first time. Mm. You're going to have to revamp things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's um, 
that's some great advice, I think, for me and everyone listening, I would imagine. Mm. But that's brilliant. Sue, normally, we, we normally have a set of questions, Sue, for every guest we have. So, <laughs> We've talked a lot about syllabus. <laughs> yeah. We're going we're gonna to fire off some random questions. Okay. Quick fire questions. Well, Sue will. Fire okay. more. Well, no, we'll both, we'll both fire. We'll do a couple of quick fire questions. I've got a random one for you. I don't know how this is going to sit with you, Andy. So what might be something that you believe that other people think is crazy? What other people think is crazy. Um, or, or whatever. Or interpret yeah. however you like. Mm, well, I think a lot of things that I used to believe, that the myths in karate, uh, Hikate for power. <laughs> that, <laughs> oh, go on then. Give us, give us a minute on Hikate for power. Go on, do it. And we'll stick it right up there at the top of the description and just wait for them to come. Oh. <laughs> Let, let, let's Bubkar keeps tagging me on Facebook posts every time <laughs> Hickete comes up. He, 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 ask Hickete expert Andy Allen. Oh, God. And then I have to try to persuade someone to, to, to dispel that myth. Um, okay. So, so things I think that things people believe that I think are crazy. A lot of the, um, the things that we were led to believe as a result of the dogmatic nature of traditional Shotokan, such as things I was taught. Pull your hand back hard, harder than your punch. Right? Pull it back, pull it back. And we just practice hikate, 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 and makes your power, your, your punch strong. And I believed it. I just took it for, you know, for granted that was true. And uh, for years and years, I struggled with not doing that and keeping my guard up because you're conditioned to do that. It's a bad habit, yeah. but just go try it. And then this is what in jujitsu. Sorry, I'm not, I'm not giving you a quick answer, Sue. Sorry. In jujitsu, judo, Muay Thai, martial arts that are a hundred percent focused on efficacy. They don't theorize. They just do what works. Yeah. Right. And that's how the art has evolved. Whereas in karate and other similar arts like Taekwondo, we have these ideas and we just take them for great for at face value and do it, you know, and try it. So go hit a bag. Hit a heavy bag. I have a hundred pound heavy bag in my in my shed that I've been way on the way at during COVID. And I've gone out there. I've punched it with Hikate. I punched it with my my hand up cover my head I punch it with my other hand in my back pocket I can hit hard doesn't matter what my, what my other hand does I can have my back heel off the floor there's another another myth I think it's crazy heel down for stability that's another myth you don't have to have your heel down so all these things that we've been taught in shoulder can and other and other karate styles uh, uh, I think are crazy I think it's crazy that people take things at face value and don't try it Let's try hitting with our heel up. Move your mass forward into the bag and smash. You can hit with power. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the demonstrations you see to, I'm using air quotes here, to prove a point are not based on science. Yeah. So 
uh, imagine, if you will, you have uh, an instructor up there preaching the heel down for stability when you're punching. Mm-hmm. And they have a, a young black belt up there, and he has his heel down. And he, he's holding the position of a reverse punch. And the instructor comes, bang, bang, and he hits his fists and distributes the power throughout his arm. Heel down, stable, the young guy doesn't move. Okay, lift your heel up. Does the same thing, and he kind of collapses. Mm-hmm. Because he's, he's holding a static position. Yeah. He's not moving, and so he's not stable. And therefore, because with the heel up, he's not stable, he, he, he wobbles. Mm-hmm. But that's not a punch. Yeah. That's a snapshot. Yeah. Right? And if you, if you watch people who fight and hit with impact, boxers and Muay Thai fighters, they don't stay in the static stance and, and punch the heel down. You can hit with good power with the heel down, but you don't have to. Move your mass and target. Rotate. Punch the target. One thing for me that, that really hit home with that was we had, um, this was a, a while ago, we had a new guy, a fairly big guy, and we were doing reverse punches on a, on a kick shield, and I was holding the pad. And because he'd never done, he'd done a bit of boxing, he'd never done karate before, he was hitting, moving his body weight forward, heel off the ground, and he was hitting with some power. And as soon as we kind of said, put your heel down and you pull your hand back, maybe more just so he lost that impact. So you're mm-hmm. almost you're almost getting rid of a, a natural good habit and replacing it with it makes not a lot of sense. Right. See, I, one thing that is good in a way about the the static nature of some of the keon we do in Shotokan. So you're uh, I don't know if we're going to get through five questions at this rate. So <laughs> that's OK. I, I got all day. Um, <laughs> It'd be a two-hour podcast. <laughs> it wouldn't be the first one, Andy. That's the trouble. <laughs> uh, so imagine again, you're in that, that front stance, and your lower body is static except for your hips moving, right? So you, yeah. you keep your your knee over your your instep, and it's over the inside of your instep, heel down, back foot at a certain angle, and you rotate, rotate, rotate. We become very good at rotating the hips and torso. Mm-hmm. Okay? And that is a staple of the Shotokan reverse punch, right? Rotation, rotation. However, if that's the only way you practice your punches from that static position, that static stance. You're missing out on many, many other components that are nece- necessary for generating power. Things mm-hmm. like moving your mass forward. Now, if, if you do the static kind of punch I was just mentioning, uh, you have two hip joints. So let's say you have your left leg forward. Your left hip hip joint, the way I was taught, and this is correct, that hip joint main, maintained this kind of position in space, whereas the left hip joint moves forward. Okay. So to some small extent, your your mass is moving you know, a couple inches forward, but it's minimal. Mm-hmm. So by isolating one movement, we're we're not learning how to use so many other types of movement or components of a more natural fluid punch that are necessary in generating power in a real uh, fight. Because you can't stay still and, and punch. Yeah. To me, that should be an exercise. Okay, yeah. we're not rotating. Let's, let's get in a stance. Boom. Don't move your feet. Rotate. That should be a, an exercise for isolating. It shouldn't be a staple mm. that black belts are still doing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Okay. Uh, Thank you. Answer that question, yeah. Yeah, I think I've answered that question, but that's really um, that's really interesting. So I was just thinking, it kind of leads into my the next question that I had, which was um, 
I've been doing your exercises and I've been doing those because, as you know, and he does um, keep fit that's totally based on karate. So I've been finding that I've been doing loads of sugiyakis and sugiyashis, sorry, and, and that in totally in that and loads of flow because you're not focused on technique, you're just doing it. Mm. So I found myself doing things really fast and, and loose and, and then practicing karate afterwards and thinking, oh, this is kind of good doing hooks without worrying about my feet and finding that it's easier on the back. For instance, yeah. what other practices could you do or have you done that would improve your karate? Mm. Well, uh, I, especially in the early part of our lockdown with COVID, uh, I, I built a shed in my backyard last year. It's, it's, it's a good size. It's 20 by 16. Do you do feet and inches in the UK or meters? Yeah. Okay. 20 by 16. And that was supposed to be for my lawn tractor and spare tires, winter tires and so on. But I, I've since cleaned a lot of it out and it's become my workout area. <laughs> so I have a heavy bag I've been using quite a bit and I, I bought some weights, some, some dumbbells and they're really hard to find these days because everyone wants to get fit right okay, well, yeah. things open back up uh there's gonna be loads of of dumbbells uh on kijiji for sale um yeah so i've been doing some weight training now i wouldn't depending on the kind of karate that you are looking at i wouldn't uh, that would depend on whether weight training is beneficial or not i know ian is big into weight training so when i was doing the sport karate when i was younger let's say when i was I would say I was at my peak, peak at 35. I was much lighter. I was uh, probably 165, 60 pounds um, at five foot 11. When I was light and lean, I felt fast. Okay, the fastest. And I just felt like I could fly across the floor. And so for sport karate, that's tag, you don't really need any punching power. It doesn't matter. Yeah. The idea is to explode quickly close that distance and touch the face with your glove yeah so for me then weight training was not important i didn't need to be strong now i did a lot of plyometrics leading up to tournaments for my legs uh so for anyone that doesn't know what plyometrics are they're basically exercises where you use your own body weight for resistance and you're jumping over up and down blocks doing ladder work and so on and those were super super helpful in developing especially that lower leg kind of explosiveness. Um, so if you're in sport karate, plyometrics are important. Uh, but the karate kind of karate I'm doing now involves a lot of grappling. And certainly technique is more important than strength. But if you have great technique and can, can improve your strength, that's not going to hurt, right? So I've been doing a lot of uh, weight training the last few months. And I put on, a, I put on some weight both the good and the bad <laughs> because for a while here and in Eastern Canada, our winters aren't as harsh as, as they are out in Western Canada, but even in March, it's uh, like three degrees outside. I go out in the shed. There's no heat out there. Um, so I, I train for 45 minutes. I come home and I'm in front of the computer all day long and the fridge is right next next room <laughs> so i'm doing tons of eating working out every day so i gained some muscle but i also got a spare tire in the process <laughs> so i i think 
weight training, if, if you're doing any kind of grappling in your karate, then weight training is definitely yeah. going to be, uh, it doesn't take long to get stronger. So I, I, when I started off, I don't have super big arms, but my, like I said, it's like a bicep curl. I, after eight repetitions with 25 pounds, I'm getting kind of fatigued. And after a few sets, it's, it's, it's a struggle. Um, you know, I'm doing 35 pounds now. And again, it's not huge, but that kind of strength improvement is definitely beneficial for grapplers. I mean, you, you look at the uh, high-level judoka. Mm. They're strong. Or yes. wrestlers, they're strong. Right? Yep. So I would say weight, weight train if you're into the grappling part of karate. If you're in sport karate, definitely you can use some weight training or some plyometrics for your lower body, for sure. Again, another long answer. No, it's good. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's good. It's interesting because everyone comes from everything so differently. It's, um, yeah. you know, it's always interesting. Um, we've got to ask you what, um, what your either what your favorite movie is or mm. what your favorite martial arts movie is or both. Both. You ready? I, I've That's seen right. about. Uh, I must have watched this movie thirty times and actually wore out my DVD, The Last Samurai. Okay. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, that is a good one. Yeah. And the reason why I've watched that so many times in my in my high school credit course, uh, my, my students are training for one semester, which is half a school year, five months. They're training four days a week. And for most of the semester, they're, they're doing one day of classroom work. So we're doing some theory. So we learn first thing we do is dojo kun. So every martial art has traditional martial arts, karate style has their own version of this. They do have a Tenants of Taekwondo, it's the same kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and we learn uh, a little bit about Bushido, um, about samurai, um, a little bit Japanese history, the Heian period. And as a, an example of historical fiction, but to give students a kind of flavor about post-Meiji restoration in Japan, the, the rapid changes that were Japan was, was going through with trying to become more modernized and westernized uh, and the fall of the samurai, the, 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 uh, they weren't needed as they were before. So The Last Samurai, if you haven't, anyone hasn't seen it, it's a Tom Cruise movie. I can't say I'm a huge Tom Cruise fan, but I do love him in that particular role. And it's... It's a great movie because it, it they're talking about Bushido. Uh, so my, what's, what's the main samurai's name? Katsumoto. They're in the courtyard. The cherry blossoms are blooming. And Tom Cruise's cat, character, Captain Algren, he comes in the courtyard and Katsumoto says, he's looking for the perfect blossom. And he's says to spend a lifetime looking for the perfect blossom would not be a waste of life. And we so we talk about the importance of the cherry blossom to the samurai. It's a it's a beautiful but short existence on earth. And then in the final battle scene, spoiler alert if you haven't seen this movie, uh, Katsumoto, they're, 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 you know, they're just beaten to, they're almost immortal, how, how much hardship they've gone through in all the battles in the movie. Anyway, it's time for Katsumoto to die. He's, he's, uh, he's been shot. He wants to, to do seppuku like, with his short sword. And Captain Algren, Tom Cruise's character, is helping him. And as he gets the sword thrust in his belly, 
he's looking over Tom Cruise's shoulder and sees the cherry blossoms fluttering over the battlefield in the wind. And he says, perfect. They're all perfect. So it, it's a, I, I love the movie to give that sense of what is bushy. Now it's a bit glorified because not all samurai were noble people. Some of them were, were complete asshats, right? Yeah. Uh, but I like the, the movie for the, the, the culture aspect. We also do a little bit of uh, um, what the tea ceremony is. And then they, there's a very brief scene where they show someone doing the tea ceremony. And Tom Cruise's character is, is coming to, as their, as their captive, coming to appreciate the culture. Being an American, he says, everything they do is with such purpose. They put everything into all their acts throughout the day. Just making a cup of tea is, is such a ritual, such a uh, an in-depth process, and he comes to appreciate that. And there's you know there's a bit of romance for the for the soft hearts out there too. So Last Samurai, my favorite movie of all time. It's a good wow. choice. It is a good choice. I, I one of the few movies like that that I've watched. And I truly love that. Mm. Yeah. You haven't seen that thirty times though. <laughs> I have not seen it 30 times. I think probably about three. I'm an emotional wreck at the end of every single time. <laughs> Favourite cutter and why was the Ooh. final question. And then and then we'll wrap it up because Sue's got to go to work. Okay. I would say for the brutality in yeah. its applications, like for the... The crash and clench and neck cranks and rib shots and arm bars and all the nasty one. Can you guess what it is? Techie. Techie or Nahanshi. Yes. Great choice. When I was a, a purple belt, I hated it. So did I. It, you go through really quickly, right? And yeah. so everyone next kata. And so we're doing Techie and, or Hien San, that could be the same thing. And you're waiting there in your Kibadachi for everyone to finish. And I just found it very boring. Yeah. It's all in side stance. You go left, right, left, right. I didn't appreciate it then because we didn't learn what it was for, right? So definitely techie for my for the for the bunkai. For the feeling of performing it, and I did this in competition for years and years and years. It would probably be two couples. Number one is probably Sochin. Same as me. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, did that my first time doing that in competition was with my with my sensei. We did in uh, team kata. Um, and with another one of my seniors, uh, Paul Garo, and did that for a long time. Eventually, I just got tired of doing it, and I started doing Nijushio for mm. competition. Actually, I, I did Nijushio. My, my last big tournament was in 2016 at the World Championships for the ISKF in South Africa. I did Nijushio in the finals in the senior division, old man division, and I got gold. For that. Oh, well done. Oh, congratulations. Yeah. Thank you. So, Sochin and Nijushio for the f they're different feeling, right? Sochin just strong and powerful, yeah. explosive. For someone watching, you don't get an appreciation of how hard it is to perform that kata well in the fudodashi. Yeah. But when you start learning it, for someone who doesn't know well, it's it's just awful looking. You know, as far as the aesthetics of kata is concerned. I, I, you know, I like Gangaku as well. Although it's getting harder to do those sidekicks as I get older. <laughs> yeah. To be to be fair, I kind of tend to do. My hips are a bit not great. They mm. never have been. So I sometimes, I, a lot of the time, I just do a front kick if I'm practicing them. Yeah. Just yeah. To make it easier. I just kick kick knee level. Mm. Yeah. 
I used to do, you know, the head level kick. I, I still can on a good day. Um, but uh, I, I realizing that uh, I, I hurt my hip doing some Mawashigaris two and a half weeks ago. Just, I wasn't even hitting a bag, just air kicking. Mm. And I realized, you know, I, I got to stop uh, pretending I'm 30 years old again. <laughs> well, that was interesting. Great advice. And uh, yeah, it's, it's made me do want to do two things. I'm going to go re carry on with the syllabus and watch The Last Samurai again. <laughs> I'll have it on in the background. Mm. Um, so yeah, thanks very much for your time and for coming yeah. on. Um, anytime you want to come back, it'd be great. We can ask more questions. Yeah. I, yeah. I tend to talk a lot, ramble, and I don't know if I gave you a chance to get all your questions in, but. Oh, that's the best kind. Yeah. We get a yeah. lot of. Yeah information is is great yeah uh, where folks in, in england are you located the southwest. 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 The southwest yeah okay i'm in glastonbury we're right near the festival so yeah yeah i was supposed to go to the residential with ian mm. uh last month and i was uh going to peter constantine 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 mm-hmm. he uh reached out to me because he knew i was coming up and knew I was new to the WCA, of course, uh, asked me if I want to train with him. I was like, fantastic. So I, yeah. I really missed out. I was going to do five yeah. days of awesome karate, but uh, hopefully I'll be back next year. And I know that's geographically quite a ways from where you guys are, but uh, maybe we shall cross paths someday. Yeah, definitely. We can sort something out for sure. Yeah. Cool. Thank mm. you very much for your time, Andy. It's been absolutely fascinating to talk to you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks. Welcome. Thank you. Over there in Canada. Mm. Yeah. We'll speak to you soon. Yeah, speak to you soon. Take care. Bye bye. Bye, Greg and Sue. Thank you.